worship team. My name is Buddy Lyles. Uh, I serve as lead pastor here, and I just want to add my word of greeting that you've already heard, um, my word of greeting to you that you've already heard in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to give you um, two kind of uh, pastoral quick hits, uh, and then we'll dive into our final First Peter uh, message. Uh, first one is, if you're a young adult, um, think 20-something-ish, uh, just a reminder, um, or first time, maybe announcement to you, we have a house-to-house at our house tonight at 6 o'clock, uh, 6 o'clock at the Lyles house. If you don't know how to get to my house, come see me afterward. Uh, and house-to-house, for everybody else to know, it's a time where we all, everybody brings a little something, even if you can only bring like a half a bag of Tostitos, to add to the festivities, everybody brings a little something. We enjoy a lingering dinner, and then we have a time of praise and worship and prayer, and it's a rich time. Thanks to all of y'all who've already said, hey, I want the young adults to come to our house. Just keep hitting me up, let me know, and we'll be glad to try to get you on the tour, if you will. It's a great blessing to be an intergenerational church, and I want you to know that our young adults have even said as much. They appreciate the old folks like me day and I are realizing then they're like oh yeah my my parent is my dad's 46 and my mom's 44 and we're like oh <laughs> um, second thing uh, we end first Peter today but for the summer um, we are going to go through uh, we're, we're kind of going back to our 80s 90s mixtape era and so we're gonna have a mixtape if you will of the Psalms uh, the Psalms uh, allow give us voice to the cries of our heart to the things we desire the things that we despair over, and the Psalms give us a great um, just way in which to see that the real God wants the real us to show up with him. And so we can, we can do away with the these and the thous and the pretense and make sure we got it all polished and just say, God, here I am. And so I hope that you'll make, um, when you're not at the beach or at the lake or, or whatever, hope that you'll make it very regularly here. I think you'll be blessed. There'll be uh, multiple folks um, teaching us and taking us through those. And, uh, and so uh, make note of that. We'll start next week in the Psalms. Well, um, speaking of 80s, uh, mid-80s, that's, that's my wheelhouse. Uh, and the last couple of weeks, myself and some others who are about my age, you're getting to channel that, that mid-80s bleed into early 90s deal with Top Gun hitting the theaters, right? Um, we actually, this week, um, showed our boys um, the original one so that they can go and watch the, this next one, which, spoiler alert, it's much better than the original. Um, <laughs> but um, channeled that, and, and uh, in both of them, they, uh, in the newer one, they try to make nods to the old ones, kind of the same uh, premise. You know, you got all these cocky pilots. They show up at Top Gun. They're the top 1%, etc. cetera, right? And, you can just feel the testosterone like pulsating in the environment and everybody's, they're aiming to be the top pilot, um, the one that you know outranks the other ones, outscores the other ones. But it is a training school. And so one of the things that they want you to know is, you know, we're gonna do as close to combat, you know, simulation as possible because it doesn't do any good to kind of shine your boots and make sure you got the right Ray-Bans on and all that and just go, oh, we got this. In fact, they let them know in both movies, uh, our enemy has surpassed us in weaponry. Our enemy is smart. Our enemy is lethal. And they're trying to sober up these cocky pilots. They're trying to give them the dose of reality. And they even say, this is not spoiling it. I'm going back to the original one. Hey, you know, at this war, the Korean War, this was our ratio of us to them, uh, and it shrunk, you know, Vietnam, and then, boy, it, the gap's really shrinking. We've got to get back to dogfighting. We've got to get back to they have superior weaponry and aircraft. We need to get back to being the superior combatants, the superior pilots, that kind of idea, to navigate the real, real combat situations that you will be in. And in both movies, again, this is not giving it away. It would stink as a movie if they didn't do this. But all of a sudden you get, here are our orders. We got, it's go time. And you've got to go in real life. You could lose your life. Some of you likely will lose your life combat. And really, that's what we are looking at 
today. We are in a real war. We'll look at it in a moment. Uh, as a reference, Ephesians 6, Paul lets us know that our, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, the things that we can touch and feel around us. That's involved, but it's spiritual powers, these invisible powers, but real powers that are doing cosmic battle, and we are caught up in it. The things that Dan mentioned are part of those things that can, can really sideswipe us and can take us down. And so how can we be alert? How can we be ready when the enemy, we do have an enemy who has superior weaponry in one sense, just with us on our own. Um, he is... He is brilliant, and he has studied you. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your vulnerabilities. He knows your susceptibilities. And so it's a real battle going on, and you and I are in the midst of it, and your enemy and my enemy is not imaginary. This is not a drill. It's dangerous, and your enemy is out to destroy you, potentially even kill you. 1 John 2, 15 to 17, John talks about there are three enemies uh, of our soul. Well, he, he hints at this, and then throughout Scripture we see there's three enemies of our souls. The world, the flesh, and the devil. John mentions the world and the flesh. He talks about the lust of the eyes, um, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. But behind all that is our enemy, the devil, or Satan himself. And today... Peter is going to exhort us, if you will. Peter's going to say, here are your orders. Here's what you've got to get down right now because you never know when you are going to need it. You're, never going to, you're not going to know when your enemy is right on you. Or as they say in Top Gun, there's a MIG, you know, whatever, and they start giving time, uh, you know, 9 o'clock, whatever. And so I want you to stand in honor of God and his word. We're not, we don't have a scripture reader today. You are going to be the scripture readers. We're going to read it on the screen together in unison as best we can. 1 Peter 5, 8 to 14. These are Peter's charges to us for alertness and to be aware of and be ready for and resist our powerful enemy. Let's read this together. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Don't worry, I'm not going to have you lean over and give a kiss of love to anyone that you don't know next to you. Um, you can throw up the title slide here. I called this message, Standing Firm in His Grace. And you can see the picture there at night of a lion, because that is the image that is here. But I've called this message, Standing Firm, because it is both in the verse that says, Resist Him, Firm in Your Faith. And then in verse 12, it says, this is the true grace of God, which he's actually talking about the gospel that he's presented in the entire letter, plus how that gets lived out in our lives, you know, fixing our hope on him, uh, representing him, proclaiming him, who took us out of darkness into his marvelous light, uh, being submissive to government authorities, being submissive to one another, what this looks like in the home, what this looks like when suffering hits you. He says all of this is about God's grace that saves you and God's grace that sustains you in a fiery trial. We've called it surprising, not surprised. Peter's saying, I wanted to tell you all these things, some of them reminder, some of them encouragement, but it is God's sustaining grace for you 
in the times in which you live that are hostile and are full of hurt and hurting people who hurt you or who aim to hurt you. And he says, that's the grace of God. Stand firm in it. And when he uses the word firm, at least in one of the cases, I didn't look at the other one, but it might be the same. The original word firm in your faith, that phrase, the original word, is where we get our word stereo from. Interestingly, what he's, and we would say stand firm or firm in your faith, and we have the idea of footing. What is stereo? Well, if back in the day you had, um, you know, audio playing, but it wasn't in stereo, like one of your speakers went out, now it's not in stereo, right? You just kind of had whatever was on this side, and you didn't have a real true solid sound. But when both speakers are working properly, then they both pick up the highs or the lows and all that, and now you hear it in its beauty. And that's the picture, firm in your faith. When he's saying stand firm, imagine right speaker for you, left speaker, right speaker, okay? I've got a firm stance. I'm not going anywhere. I'm solid, but I'm also sort of balanced on both ends. Those of you who I've coached, some of you in here, we have a good athletic stance. Our knees are bent. Our feet are shoulder width apart. We're not like this. We don't waddle, right? We're ready to stand firm. That's why I've entitled the message this because Peter says in both sections, firm in your faith, stand firm in the true grace of God, especially as you're enduring trials. Throw the next slide up there. I'm going to run on two tracks today, what it looks like for us to be standing firm in God's grace in the midst of trials that we don't always understand, we definitely often don't want. The two tracks we're gonna run on is resist your adversary. Resist your adversary. And the second track is rest in God who is your advocate. So resist your adversary, Satan himself, the devil. We're gonna spend even more time on that because there's more meat in that section. And then we'll come to really, which is a, a way to conclude all of First uh, Peter, which is to rest in God, rest in his timing, be under his authority. It's very hard to stand firm against your adversary and the winds that are hitting you, the storms that we've just sung about, unless we have bent low. Because really, you can go back to verse five in this section to begin. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. When we bend low, now we're ready to stand firm. And bending low, humbling ourselves, putting our anxieties on him, throwing them, as we said last week, on him, he's capable to handle that. He does care. That's why he says to, to give it to him. And ultimately, he'll, he's the one that in his timing will exalt you. He's in charge of the timing. Exaltation is not wrong. It's a matter of timing and authority. And so resist your adversary and rest in God, your advocate. Now, I took this picture. Um, I, I just like, okay, lion. I got to get a good picture of a lion. And evidently, this guy, this is a real picture because I have other ones of this guy. Evidently, this guy, I can't remember his name, he's kind of the lion whisperer, okay? Let me say this to all you children. Do not try this at home. Do not try this at the zoo or any safari you go on. Or if you go down to South Texas to one of those, you know, we brought Africa to, uh, to uh, the Austin area. We're not getting anywhere near a lion, okay? Thank, you're welcome, parents. Oh, sorry. And parents, don't get in with the, no. Um, but evidently, he is right there with that lion. This passage is not telling you, hey, now go, go hunt down Satan and go after him. That's not what he says, resist. Resist is, it's coming at you. You stand firm and you resist, okay? That is the picture. This is one of several uh, images of Satan uh, in Scripture, in Genesis. Um, not just an image. He was a serpent. He's the serpent of old. And as a serpent, he deceives. But as a lion, he seeks to devour. Now, there are other images of Satan. We'll go through, we'll hint at some of them as we go through. But know that, just like we're talking about with Top Gun, know that your enemy is bent against you. 
He is after you. He wants to take you down. He wants to ruin your family. He wants to touch whatever nerve would be the touchiest nerve in you to have you either reject God or maybe even better in his mind, let me just ignore him. Let me just kind of be indifferent about God. And Satan is after you and me to take us down and to destroy us. And so resisting our adversary, we need to be sobered by him, that he's a formidable foe. We need to be aware of his aims, and we need to be aware that there are others who suffer and who are also in that suffering susceptible to temptation, to discouragement, to losing heart. Okay, so let's go through resist your adversary. Resist your adversary, the next slide. Sobered by our formidable foe. He uses the word, the phrase sober-minded. Sober-minded. Sometimes it helps to go, well, what is the opposite of that? The opposite of sober in our world is drunk. But the, also the opposite of sober is kind of living in, in numb fantasy land and not really alert not having full um, faculty, your full faculties at play. So be the opposite of those things. Be sober-minded, be alert, be clear thinking. Have a perspective that helps you see not only what's in front of you, but see through it to what is in it and what the true reality is. So we want, we don't want to first know to be sobered about him, to be sober-minded, he is a formidable foe. He does exist. He is a personal created being. Uh, he's not ugly, evidently. He's attractive. He's brilliant. He's clever. And he's got a lot of energy in the tank to go after those that he considers his enemies. He exists. He's a personal created being. I want you to hear this. He's not an imp in a red suit with horns, um, you know, and the, the tail and the pitchfork. That's not who he is. He'd love for you to keep that cartoon in your head because that's a pretty impotent image. No, think serpent that can inject venom into you. Think lion that can take you, tear you apart and then invite his pride in to have a buffet that is who he is he is real uh, he is our adversary uh, when he says um, in verse 8 there be sober minded be watchful your adversary the devil adversary uh, is a legal opponent who's if you've got a savvy lawyer they're looking for weaknesses in your argument so that they can turn those against you and win the case against you. That is what he is. He is your adversary. He is personally against you. It's not just Satan going, hey, how can I just cause some havoc in the world? Yes, he's trying to do that, but he is personally adversarial against you. And he is trying to look for those weaknesses in order to advance the case against you he is a lion in that way and he's also a liar next slide john 8 jesus warns or he's actually um getting on the religious leaders of his day he says you are of your father the devil and you want to do the desires of your father what are the devil's desires he was a murderer from the beginning and he does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him whenever he speaks a lie he speaks from his own nature for he is a liar and the father of lies. So he is a lion and he is a liar, but he's a smart liar. Next slide. Did I say smart lawyer or did I say smart liar? I said smart liar, right? They're kind of almost the same. No. I'm sorry, my attorney friends. I'll look right at you, attorney friend. Uh, <laughs> Paul to the Corinthians. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. In other words, we might not, if we saw him, recognize him. For one, he's not pitchforked and red and horns, but he's also not uh, as much grotesque as we might want to see him. He takes a shower. He shaves. 
he's dressed to the nines or he's dressed in North Face. Whatever the occasion calls for, he's going to be dressed for the occasion, but as a disguise, as a deception to be attractive to you and me. And what he does is he takes God's truth and he infuses a lot of it in the situation in your mind or mine or my mind, but then he'll twist it. He'll bend it to appeal to your urges or to your wounded ego and deceives us. So we need to be sobered by him. He is real and he is a personal adversary of yours. Next slide, he needs to be respected. He needs to be respected. If we're going to be sober-minded about him, we're not flipping about him. We're not making jokes about him. We're not seeking to, as I said with the lion, like, let me see if I can poke the lion. This is not what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to resist him, but he is to be respected. The next slide, C.S. Lewis says, here's our issue. There's kind of two errors we go into. Um, one camp of us would be superstitious. Like, we just see the devil everywhere. And then the other, and I don't know if I'm making this word up or it's a fancy word they use in the 1300s, superstition is like hyperstitious, like looking for him everywhere. And substition would be we undersell him. We underappreciate him. We underestimate him. And C.S. Lewis says it this way, there are two equal and opposite errors in which, to our, which our race, meaning humanity, can fall about the devil's. One is to disbelieve in their existence. I think that's more of us in Bible church world. And the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. So he's to be respected, not dismissed as, I mean, really, most of the troubles in the world are self-inflicted. If people would just be responsible and do this and that, cause and effect only, right? That's kind of just a he's not even around or the other way is that you see him under every rock you you see him every time um, your computer reboots on its own now i will say i do have a demonic computer now i just wanted to say that i'm buddy and i have a demonic computer hello um but i would say that at times as a pastor i will get folks i think well-intentioned but possibly deceived by satan himself to see Satan in every situation. They'll come and they'll say, man, I, you know, I've got my last, sort of like this is my last chance at work. Like I'm about to be on the verge of being fired. And like, as you just even find out what's going on in their story, it's like, well, they're late almost every day. Uh, they take, you know, extra long lunches. They don't really communicate well with the boss. They're actually kind of behind on their numbers or they're not following through on, you know, whatever their job is. And you're like, this isn't spiritual warfare. This is you. You look at the context of 1 Peter, right? He says, hey, we're blessed if we suffer for doing what is right, or if we suffer for the name of Christ. If we're reviled for the name of Christ, we are blessed. But he says, also, if, you know, paraphrasing him I did a few weeks ago, basically if suffering is coming on you because you're being an idiot or you're being a jerk, you got what you deserved. Okay, and I say that in light of we can think about spiritual warfare at times and try to take responsibility off ourselves for anything. And he says, don't, let's not go either extreme. Let's be respectful of him uh, and aware of him. Because Satan, if for those of us who don't take him very seriously, Satan takes you very seriously. He studies you. He analyzes you. He knows where you're susceptible. He knows where you have hurts. He knows where you have cravings. He knows the way that you tend to lean or where you tend to get tripped up. And so we are to be uh, take him seriously. Uh, next slide, 2 Corinthians 11. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. See, Satan wants to deceive, 
And he wants to distract you and me from devotion to Christ. And he'll use whatever means necessary to take my eyes, to take your eyes off of Jesus, and to put them, put in front of your eyes what would be the lust of your eyes, the lust of your flesh, the lust of your heart. He wants to distract you and me from devotion to Christ. And that's not just the seedy stuff. That's also, I apologize, not yours. That's also this stuff. Hours upon hours upon hours. And devotion to Christ shrivels and evaporates. And Satan loves it. Because you're not involved in seedy stuff. You're just not devoted to Christ. You're not cultivating that devotional relationship with him, or I am not. And Satan loves for us to be deceived in that way. The next, we need to be sobered by him, and yet know that he can be resisted on purpose. I put it lowercase h, because he's not omnipotent. His power is limited. We look at Job in the Old Testament, and we find out, um, I guess Job found out later because he recorded it for us, that Satan went to God and said, hey, let's talk about Job. I think he only follows you because his life's pretty cushy. He's wealthy. He's got a big family. I mean, everything, he's got everything going for him. Why don't you let me mess with him a little, and let's see how devoted he really is to you. And God had said, you know, have you considered him? I mean, Job is faithful to me. He's, he's my guy. And then he says, okay. Satan, I'll, I'll allow that. So notice, Satan can be resisted. His power is limited because it has to be allowed by God himself. Okay? And he says, okay, but, you know, I'm going to limit what you can do, but go ahead. And Satan's attacks on him are personal. They are lethal. Uh, he has ten coffins, of which are his children, uh, so Satan touches his, his family. He touches his finances. He loses, you know, livestock. The bank account's drained. His wife is saying, just let's just curse God and die. And that's where, you know, we get the song, um, Blessed Be Your Name. That's from Job on the, on the heap of the rubble of his stuff saying, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We think, yeah, this is a fun song. It's kind of upbeat. Blessed be your name. It's like, well, he's saying that as an act of resisting the temptation to denounce God. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Peter himself in the upper room with Jesus. Jesus has washed their feet probably because they were having an argument again about who's the greatest. Jesus says, well, we all know. I mean, he is their teacher. He's the one in charge, if you will. He's the one who girded himself up like a servant and got down and washed feet. He humbled himself, which is what we know marked Peter, impacted him because he shares about it over and over again. But also in the midst of that, he says, everybody else, he said, you guys are going gonna to run on me. It's going to get hot in the kitchen, and you're going to bail. And Peter says, not me. Everybody else may, but I won't. And he says, Peter, Satan's asked permission to sift you like wheat. And he basically says, and, and I've prayed for you, and when you blow it, when you fail, that God will give you the grace to return, and then you'll strengthen your brothers. What is First Peter? First Peter is a result of years later, after the denials of Peter to the little girl by the fire, then Jesus restoring him on the beach in John 21. Do you love me, Peter? Lord, you know I love you. Then feed my sheep, tend my lambs. Or when, as I am now restoring you and I will strengthen you, you're going to operate in my strength. You're going to go through suffering because you're going to learn the lesson that suffering goes before glory. The cross before the crown. And Peter, then you're going to strengthen your brothers. First Peter 5 is strengthening his brothers and sisters who were scattered around the world and who were going through suffering. And a lot of what First Peter, we've already talked about, is truth about trials, truth about who we are when we be tempted to doubt 
God or doubt our identity in him, doubt our security in him, doubt the worth of sticking with him. And yet, Peter himself, um, Jesus, evidently there was the allowance of Satan messing with Peter, and yet Jesus overrules that, if you will, once he has failed and restores him back to what his purposes are now that he's been humbled by his failure and now that he will grow in grace. So we're to be sobered by him. The next thing, we're to be aware of his aims. He's a real enemy. He is bent on you and me. We're to be aware of his aims. Again, we often struggle taking Satan seriously, but he takes you very seriously. Uh, the next slide. Paul again uh, in 2 Corinthians He's telling them what he's telling them, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we're not ignorant of his schemes. Next slide. One of his schemes is for those who aren't believers, that he would blind. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Some of you in here may not have ever come to a place of trusting Jesus Christ as your place taker on the cross. You may have never trusted him as your savior for the forgiveness of sins and for life in his name. And us talking about Satan probably just gets on your last nerve and you're like, that's it. These people are loony. He is in a red suit and they're just all obsessed with him, or whatever. That's the God of this age blinding your eyes. I'm not trying to say that in an arrogant way. I'm trying to say it in a, in, a, in a gracious way that everyone in here who is a believer, we didn't get smart enough to figure that out on our own. God had to cause the veils on our eyes, veils on our hearts to drop so that we could see the beauty, the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, the ugliness of our own sin and our desperate need for him and that he, for the joy set before him, took my place on the cross and he do, endured it. And God said yes to what Jesus has done. And so we need to be aware of his aims. He's looking to blind the unbelievers. He's looking to take advantage of us. And we don't want to be ignorant to his schemes. The next slide. These are all the descriptions of him. He's bent against you. He angles to discredit you as devil. That's what the devil means. Um, he's the accuser of you. A prowling lion wants to intimidate and distract you. And ultimately, he's looking to devour you, not to injure you, not to maim you, not just to get you scared. The word devour in this passage means to gulp down. Means to gulp down. And he's looking for any and every way in which, if you will, he can skewer you and me and throw you on the grill and devour you and devour me. And so we don't want to be, uh, we don't want any advantage to be taken of us because we're not really aware of his aim. We're not aware that he really does have a target on your back. Now, he's not omnipresent also, but he does have his minions that go and do his bidding. And he does have, um, God has given him, he's called elsewhere the, the prince of the power of the air. He's not called the king, but he has given some level of uh, power in our world. And so our world system, broken by sin, he'll take it to use to his advantage so he can get to us, so he can take us out, gulp us down. And so he's looking. Take him seriously because he takes you seriously. He's searching for your susceptible points where he could get an advantage, where he could get a foot uh, in the door, where you might be temptable, where you might be vulnerable. Give a couple of examples. Let's say, as we're going to talk about in, uh, in the next few weeks, God's better story of sex, just God creating us and the worth of being made in his image and all that that looks like. And what does it mean to be a man or a woman? But let's just give you one example um, in terms of being susceptible and Satan looking to take advantage. A young woman may tie her identity, her self-worth to her body. She ties her worth not to what God says about her, but to how much she weighs or, how, or what size she wears, how attractive others find her. 
And Satan may say, I got an entry point. Maybe I could bring her to a place of saying, yep, that's right. You need to, you need to see food as the enemy. You need to and, and take you down the road of, of an eating disorder. Or you need to begin to compare yourself over and over and over again to every other woman who walks by. If you're married wondering, well, when that woman walked by, I wonder if my husband finds her more attractive than me. And it plays over and over and over. Or if you're a man that has a lust problem, don't worry, they're not all about sex. I'm just giving you a couple here. But these are real. If a man has a lust problem, but Satan knows it's not just lust problem, but there's kind of a certain kind of woman that a man is attracted to and drawn to. And so he says, well, I can work some things in the back channels. And now at his workplace, she can sit in the cubicle next to him. And that's just one placement of another person. But also, I'm going to try to sow a little discord at home. Maybe he gets on his wife's nerves, and now he's less respectable, so she doesn't respect him. If you've ever heard the love and respect thing, she doesn't feel love, so she doesn't respect. He doesn't feel respected, so he doesn't love. And the cycle goes. And the next thing you know, the woman that is kind of in that attractive, you know, profile that he may find more attractive she listens to him she laughs at a joke and satan is ready to devour one of the things i saw as a young adults pastor and have seen even working with men um, for years is um, a part of a young man's story maybe that he never felt like he measured up to his father's designs for him or maybe he didn't know his father, or his father ignored him, wasn't around. And there's a big crater. And then for that man, especially if he felt like his father says, you don't measure up, you don't have what it takes, he spends his life everywhere he goes, and Satan's ready. Every place you go has to be a place where you have to prove that you have what it takes. Those are real things. And particularly as I've seen that with, with men, and it's not just young men. It's even men in their 70s and 80s. It's a sad thing to see the scramble, to see, see, I have what it takes, but then they know, well, if I kind of propped up this image and propped up this, I can't really keep that up, and it crushes you. It crushes you, and Satan says, I got you where I want you. And again, as Dan will come, um, there are going to be areas that we'll discuss in God's better story of sex. Satan will deceive you and me to think, you know, pornography doesn't hurt anybody. Or maybe, you know, as long as you're loving to someone, it just matters that you're loving, not who you love. You're going to hear that a lot this month. And Satan would love for what sounds true to be twisted and to get you and me deceived and ready to be devoured. Also in 1 Peter, he can, um, in his um, twisting the truth, he can get us to be distracted from these truths. Next slide, that we've learned in 1 Peter. We've learned that this place is not our home. We're resident aliens. We've learned that trials can be not just painful, but they can be context for joy, actually. Um, that our living hope, that's what First Peter is all about. Our living hope is not just something for some day, it is, but it's in a person, and that person is Jesus, and it's not just a living hope for some day, but it's a, a living hope that we are to live by. Therefore, we continually fix our hope on Him. Um, we're to live distinctively, to be a surprise. In chapter 4, we learn well, the people you used to run with and live that frat-style lifestyle, they're surprised that you no longer want to run into those same dissipations. But see, Satan would love to twist that and go, yeah, but you want to kind of keep, um, keep up your image with the boys. Or let's not get too crazy over here because, you know, you want these people to still esteem you or be careful because of can cancel culture. Uh, suffering precedes glory. We already talked about that. The key to enduring is entrusting. 
He says that a couple times. Jesus didn't revile in return, he, but he kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. Or in 419, after he says in 12, don't be surprised at the fiery trial, he says in 19, that we're to, the way to get through suffering is entrusting ourselves to our faithful creator. And then lastly, it's all about proclaiming him, being those who, when we're asked, we live in such a way that they say, what is the deal with you? And he's like, we're ready to give a reason for the hope within us. And that's Jesus himself. But Satan would love to twist that. Now, we are to be sobered by him. We're to be aware of his aims. Now we're going to pick up the pace. Lastly, we're going to be, uh, he says, resist him being firm in the faith. And what I want to give you is a couple of additional places where he might get a foothold a foothold. What is a foothold? Yes, imagine a door that's about to close and you get the foot in to keep the door open. But if Satan has an agenda for you and aim to take you out to devour you, hear that. But also a foothold is, is a secure position, a position you secure in order to advance further. I got in on that area of your life. Let me advance further. Um, Russia and Ukraine. What's Russia? What were they doing in the beginning? They're trying to get ports and key places. Why? Because once they have that foothold, now they can advance further. That's exactly what Satan's after. I want to give you, this is going to be real quick. This is going to be fire hydranty. But these are real things that I, what I want you to see is, in the moment you may think, ah, eh, it's not that big a deal. But one decision, one um, non-alert, just go with the flow moment, and you may be giving a foothold. Okay, here we go. In Ephesians uh, 5, unresolved anger. We're to lay aside falsehood, speak truth to one another, be angry, yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. Just ask yourself as we go through these, is there unresolved anger between me and my spouse? Is there unresolved anger between me and a friend, a coworker? Be careful, beware, it could be a foothold. In First Chronicles, we see again, personally involved, Satan stood up against Israel and he moved David to number Israel to go, hey, let me, let me feel better about myself. Let me number Israel. Self-reliance. Don't need God. He's out of the picture. And this is what got David in trouble with God. He says, you stepped, you stepped in the wrong direction. Next, greed and lying. Acts 5, uh, we said that this probably was where the, the people either ran for the doors at worship when they saw Ananias and Sapphira drop dead after the offering, or they were the most alert and participatory in worship they've ever been. We don't know that part, but what we do know is that the amount they gave seemed, in chapter 4, we see an amount given by Barnabas. Now we see an amount given by them, probably similar similar probably looked for us like, boy, they both just Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira just dumped a huge wheelbarrow of, of, of coin. Wow, how generous they are. And yet Peter himself says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back some of the price of the land? It was the deception for appearance that was their uh, issue, and it became a foothold. They allowed Satan to get in and tempt them with greed and lying. Next is immorality in 1 Corinthians 5. 5, excuse me. Paul is confronting them for not addressing and confronting the issue of immorality within the body. And he talks about that being arrogant. It's a, it's a place in which, again, Satan can get a foothold. Another one in 1 Corinthians 7, uh, in marriage, depriving one another uh, sexually. He says, hey, um, the husband's body is not his own, it's the wife's. The wife's body is not hers. And then, you know, you have the idea of, hey, if you're going to abstain for a bit, it ought to be for the purpose of prayer, that idea. But stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again. Why? So that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So watch out if that is an area because it could become a foothold for Satan. Lastly, as we've seen in 1 Peter 5, pride and anxiety. Um, 
If you really cast your cares on him, he really takes them. And Satan could say, nah, he doesn't really care, or he can't really do anything about that. And we can say, you know what? I need to bootstrap it. I need to resist, you know, this whole trust God thing. That doesn't work because my worry is what I really feel like I've got some grip on, and I'll really get somewhere if I just keep worrying about it. And Satan's like, I love, I'll, I'll take that all day. Pride and anxiety. Um, you know, we, we sing, It Is Well, talking about that. That was written by a man who lost his family and the suffering, and he looked out, and he, and he, had, to nav- he had to process Who is God? Where is God? How do I process all this pain, all this loss? And he wrote, it is well. But one of the verses is, uh, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. And that's why I'm, I'm, I'm saying that because he was using the resources of the truth of the gospel when he was at a very susceptible, vulnerable moment of personal pain. You say, you know what? I just need a little salve. I need to just kind of indulge myself. He went to the place of pain and loss and looked out on that ocean where his family died and processed with the Lord. We're going to see that processing as we go through Psalms. But the question I would say is, do you realize that, yes, he's a real enemy and he's got good weaponry and all that, but do you, do you use the resources of the gospel and God's truth on your pride or anxiety, on greed and lying, on your temptation to just live in despair, on that temptation to prove yourself as a man, uh, on your comparison and where you are discontent and beat yourself up? Are you using the resources of the gospel and who you are in Christ against that? 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. This is great to memorize because this is a war scene. This is war imagery. Like we talked about with Top Gun, we are at war. We have an enemy. And he says, we, um, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Next one. We are destroying speculations in every lofty thing, raised up against the knowledge of God. That is twisted truth, man's philosophy, Satan wanting to use a little truth to sound truthy, and yet twist it to lead to destruction and ruin. We are destroying those things. We're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That is war imagery. You and I are in a war, whether we recognize it or not, and he's given us the ability in the gospel to have the resources Necessary to resist the devil, to be firm in our faith, and to rest in God who has our back. John Mark Comer, who wrote a book called Live No Lies, he actually talks about the world, the flesh, and the devil, and what in the world, how do we on a daily basis, you know, we make decisions, and then our decisions make us. The habits we sow actually do form character, and if those are those habits are developed based on things I think will make me happy but are really opposed to God's truth, I'm going to go, it starts out here, and then I'm going to keep going that way. And he says this about Satan's strategy for you and me. He says, my working theory of the devil's strategy is deceitful ideas that play to disordered desires that are normalized in society. That's exactly what we're going to talk about for three weeks on Wednesday night. We're going to talk about that uh, all together, fifth uh, grade through adults on the first night when they go to uh, elementary age and youth the uh, other two nights, still the same topics. We're going to talk about it. What does that look like when he gives us deceitful ideas that play to our disordered desires and have been normalized by our society? We've got to be alert, but as, as Dan said, particularly, you want to spot a counterfeit, what you do, need to do is immerse yourself again and again in the truth. You want to see a fake 20? Study a real 20, and study a real 20 again, and study a real 20 again. As soon as you see a fake one, that's exactly how they train our experts on what a counterfeit is. All right, so we are to be sobered by him, aware of his aims, and be strong in the Lord. Ephesians 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of of the devil. And then in 1 John, skip to 1 John, 
basically saying, yes, Satan is strong, but Jesus is stronger. He's greater. You are from God, little children. I've overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he, little h, who is in the world. Be strong in the Lord and then be aware, 1 Peter um, 5, be aware knowing as you resist him, knowing the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. It always helps to know that you and I are not alone. So that's our adversary. We're to resist him, not in our own strength. We're to be strengthened in the Lord, be aware of other suffering that's going on so we know that we're not alone. Both God's with us and other believers are with us and going through the same stuff to resist our adversary, but then we're to rest in him. And we're going to close with this. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up. It says, it's only a little while, the suffering you're going through. It's only a little while, this onslaught of the, tempt, the things that tempt you and me. And Satan himself, his time is limited. His prince-like authority is limited. He says, uh, the next slide, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, he himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. We can rest in him. While we wait and it's painful for a little while, we can know that he will make all things right. And notice, we looked at Satan. He himself personally has a target on you. Notice that God himself personally, he says, I will personally. He didn't dispatch an angel to confirm and establish and strengthen you. He will send angels at times to strengthen you. But he says he himself will be the one who does that so that we can rest in him, trusting him, and stand firm in his grace. We're going to sing a song called This uh, I Believe on that, and then I'll have a closing word and benediction. Would you stand? Pull up the uh, slide, blessed be. The fourth to the last. This is uh, where we began in First Peter. Is where we'll end. Jesus is personally our living hope in a hostile and hurting world. And we could ask, what kind of God would allow suffering like Job or like I'm going through? And really the answer is what we've just sung. It's the one who knows our griefs. He's acquainted with our griefs and our sorrows. He was a man of sorrows. And yet he was the one that, that God called his very son to suffer unto death because of his great love and mercy. And that is our hope, not our own merit, but him. So uh, let's say these three slides together as our closing benediction. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, been grieved by various trials. Have a great week.